Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have to be together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, it is a blessing to be with your people. It's a blessing to open your word. And Lord, we need the encouragement that comes from gathering together with the saints. Lord, I pray for Linda's family as they continue to process her loss. Lord, I thank you for the time that she spent with Lakeside. I thank you that you uh, chose us to be able to care for her and minister to her. And I thank you, Lord, for the impact she made on us. And I pray for Shirley to recover from whatever illness she has. And I pray for Michelle that she'll be able to rejoin us. Lord, you again chose to bring these ladies to us. And we thank you for the impact that they've had on us, but also the opportunity you've given us to minister to them. I pray, Lord, for Steve and Michelle to have a great time away with LaVon. I pray that they've had a good week and that they'll have safe travels as they come back. I just pray, Lord, that everything that we do today will bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. And I should add one final request. If you could pray for me. My, I'm preaching tonight, and I am farther behind in my preparation than I ever recall. The funeral kind of threw me a curveball that I wasn't expecting, but it was a priority, and I was thankful for the opportunity to prepare for it. But the time I would have done, spent yesterday preparing for tonight, wound up being devoted to the funeral. And so I trust fully that the Lord will give me something to say, but I'm not sure that I have it yet. So, uh, And I don't know any interpretive dances or anything like that that I can use to fill time, so... So, with that, if you could pray for me today, I would appreciate it. If you'll turn to Hebrews 13, I am getting increasingly excited as we come to the end of the book. We're getting closer and closer to reaching the summit, which is the end of Hebrews. And as I look at the text, I think after today, I will probably have one or perhaps two messages and we'll be done with the book. Now, in the context of our studies, again, I'm, today we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 19. And then I'll break up the last five verses. And again, I don't know if I'll do one or two messages. But I should complete the book of Hebrews this month. After that, at least one Sunday, Lord willing, depending on the timing, I've got to work out my schedule as far as what we do, but I'm going to take an extended break from teaching for the summer. As many of you know, we're having our house added on to, to provide space for my mom who lives with us, and it's coming to a conclusion of where that's going to be done, and our life is just chaotic. I've got summer camp, as I always do with everyone. Uh, I'm doing a wedding for a family member in July, and it's just going to be a hectic time. So I already have John Schroeder teaching most of June. Mike Mitchell is going to teach the last Sunday of June and the month of July. And I'm probably, I've been talking to a couple of people to have some people teach for me in May. It's just a matter of me having to reschedule some things. I also have to do a lot of work on the church budget before our annual meeting. And so when you add up all the various things, I'm going to be taking a little bit of a break. But as I do, pray for me because I'm going to be looking for our next study. I've got some ideas of what I'm going to do, but I haven't come to a set conclusion of what book we're going to study next. But this morning we're in Hebrews, and we are looking at some verses that really sort of are inserted. It's not as though they don't have 
connection to the rest of the book, but in the flow of argument, it's as though one thought has stopped, and he begins to share another thought. And because of the nature of what's in this section, there's an aspect of it where I would just assume skip at least verse 17 and move past it. But I recognize this is the Word of God and this is what's here. So I'm going to teach this morning from these verses, even though there's an aspect of it that causes me a little bit of trepidation. So as we come to this, the reality is the writer is talking about how We, as church members, deal with church leadership. And specifically, in this context, since I happen to be church leadership, although in the past I've just been a part of churches, if I could put it in very direct terms, for example, it's directing how you should respond to someone like me or Pastor Steve or the other elders of our church. And again, there's parts of this that I'd rather not teach, but this is the Word of God, and so... The reason I don't want to teach it is because I fear men. So with that, I've just got, this is a simple outline, and it's two proper responses to church leadership. I think in the context, it flows very clearly, even though verse 17 is really a little bit separate from verse 18 and 19, they're all dealing with church leadership, and I think it can be instructive for us. So this is two proper responses to church leadership, and I'm going to read verses 17 to 19 and then begin with our Study. Verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do this so that I may be restored to you the sooner. So in this, we're going to see two proper responses to church leadership. And the first response is this. Obey your leaders for your own good. And I don't mean that as ominous as it sounds. When I just read it, it sounds worse than when I wrote it. So (laughs) if I reteach this later, I'll change that wording. I'm sorry. Obey your leaders for your own benefit, for your own profit. Let's put it that way. Verse 17 is a challenging text in American culture. It's the verse I really would love to skip because I'm one of your church leaders. I'm one of your pastors. And this verse is telling you how you should respond to us. And for me to teach on this can seem self-serving. It's one of the values of teaching verse by verse is you're not just cherry picking. If I just showed up one Sunday and said, hey, let me teach a verse, everybody would be suspect wondering what's he doing This is just where we are, so I've got a clear conscience. And I have to teach the whole counsel of God. That's what we base our life on. That's what we do. So with a little bit of fear and trembling, more because I fear man than anything else, I will state the obvious as Scripture states it. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Now this has a few components, and I want to try and deal with them completely. And the immediate context, though, as you recall the book and how it was written, it suggests that perhaps there was some strain between the present church leadership and the people to whom the letter was sent. We don't know any of the details. We know if we go back to verse 7, 
there was a reference to leaders who had already passed away, perhaps the founders of the church or at least the people that had led these hearers to faith. Verse 7 of Hebrews 13 says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. So there was a positive relationship with some who had already died, and they're being told in verse 7, you live like they did. You remember what they were like. You do that. But here, it's almost as though he has to give this exhortation because there were some who were tempted not to submit to leaders or some who were tempted not to obey leaders. And I think in some respects, it's tied in to the very concept of teaching the Word of God. Again, if you recall the beginning of verse 9 in Hebrews 13, if you just look up there, the first part, do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. You can almost envision a scenario, and this may be the case, I'm not stating it dogmatically, where the leaders of the church were teaching one thing and the people wanted to believe something else. They wanted to follow after some other type of teaching that perhaps tickled their ears in a certain way or appealed to their desires. And so the writer had already warned them, don't be carried away by strange teachings. Don't, don't follow after all of that falsehood. And here he's telling them, obey and submit to your own leaders. Listen to them. It seems, again, from context, that probably there was a corrective component to this. And leaders in this context, even though it's not the normal word for pastors or teachers, given the fact that, as we'll see in a moment, it talks about the fact that they will give an account to God, they have charge over your souls, it's obvious this is spiritual work. There are countless scriptures that say submit to all authority, but in this context, leaders, even though the language is a little different, is talking about church leaders. And this whole phrase, obey your leaders, rubs Americans the wrong way. We are a fiercely independent people. Nobody tells me what to do. I'm free. And unfortunately, that carries over into churches. But the word of God is clear and direct. Obey is not a suggestion. It's an imperative command. In other words, if you don't obey... As it's phrased here, you're disobedient to God. Now, what does that really mean? Obey. Obey your leaders. I think in the immediate context, it has applicability to the teaching ministry of your leaders. What they teach you from the Word of God. And it's referring to obedience to the teaching of the Word. In other words, if a leader of the church tells you this is what the Word of God requires and they teach you that, you're supposed to obey that. You're supposed to practically live out that teaching. God's desire for you is that you trust the leaders He has given you. That's why the phraseology, I think, is not just obey, but obey and submit. It means to willingly place yourself under the authority of that leadership. It's something that you do voluntarily, but it is a mandate from God. You willingly subject yourself to the authority of your church's leadership. Again, this is a tough sell in the American context. 
Because it seems like our country by nature is distrustful of all authority. We don't want to submit to anybody. At an early age, we learn rebellion, it seems, and it carries on until we pass off of the scene in America. And yet submission is one of the great themes of New Testament Christianity. Beginning of James 4, 7, it just says, submit therefore to God. It's straightforward. Our lives are supposed to be in submission to God. But it encompasses every sphere of life. For example, in 1 Peter, it says, servants, be submissive to your masters. The best correlation in our modern society is if you work for somebody, you submit to your boss. And it's interesting because in 1 Peter 2.18, it says, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle. That's the easy part. You've got a good boss. Hey, we submission's no problem. But also to those who are unreasonable. Now, you could do a seminar in America for Christians on submitting to unreasonable bosses because all of us, and I've been in those shoes. I wasn't always a pastor. I used to work for people. We can be grumblers or complainers and all those things. First Peter 3, 1 and 2, in the same way you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. That really will stir the hornet's nest. <clears throat> it's interesting. Again, talks about husbands even if they're disobedient to the word. Not just to good husbands. That's not hard. But if you don't have a good husband... <clears throat> Romans 13, 1 and 2. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority is opposed to the ordinance of God. We've got to be careful about that during the election season. Because we view people that we don't vote for as the Antichrist, it seems. That's our default setting. Must be the Antichrist. Must be the Antichrist. Must be. Well, we may have as the next president a female. Don't call her the Antichrist, because I don't think the Antichrist will be female, but somebody will figure it out. They'll reinterpret it. But, but the point is, our duty is to submit and to pray for our leaders. Similar teaching in First Peter. The reality is it's all about humility, which is contrary to our natural state. In our flesh, we are prideful. We are independent. We know best. And I think that's why, if you see this picture of the New Testament, what we're being told is in every sphere of our life, we are supposed to practice submission. Even in the context of the church, we're supposed to submit our desires to others' desires. Don't look out for your own interest. Not trying to maintain your rights and authority, but trusting God and willingly submitting. I think Philippians 2, 5 to 8, and it paints a picture of what Jesus did, but it's the attitude of the heart that we should have. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Anytime we have to submit or obey, it's about humbling ourselves. And Christ is our example. Now, I want to be real 
clear and careful with this. But verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. And I recognize that some pastors have used this for abusive purposes. I was just reading an article this week about someone who had died, and I'd read about the controversy before, but I I read about it a little bit more. And this person had set himself up as a little dictator. And he preached from a recliner at his house, a million-plus-dollar house that the ministry had bought. And he made hundreds of thousands of dollars a year from his followers. And he ruled with an iron fist. He told people what to do, where to live, how much money to give. That's a perversion of the scriptures. That's just a charlatan. That's a crook. But those types of abuses and errors don't negate this text. A true shepherd is supposed to exercise authority with love and compassion. But the fact remains, you're supposed to submit yourself to your church leadership and obey their teaching. If they teach you truth from the word of God, then you're supposed to obey. Now the writer gives the reasons that we obey and submit. And I'm going to, again, I'm going to elaborate some of these things. But he explains part of the role of a pastor. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. And this idea of keeping watch over your souls, you, you would picture in the Old Testament of a watchman on the wall, somebody that was always supposed to be alert, night or day, looking out for danger. And what it's teaching is that the role of a true shepherd, a true leader of God's people, is someone who's constantly vigilant, looking out for dangers, watching over the souls of those entrusted to him. That's the type of responsibility that pastors have. Protecting the flock from error, from evil, from Satan, from sin. And on and on it goes. And it's serious work with serious consequences because pastors have a very high accountability. It says they will give an account. That account is given to God. It's the kind of thing that if you're a pastor, it keeps you awake at night. Because of how serious is the responsibility to care for God's people. As I transitioned from a career as a lawyer, which was a high-stress job, into a career as a pastor, I understood a lot of what I was getting into. When I started working here, I was 40 years old, so I wasn't a little kid, I wasn't naive. I'd been a lawyer for over 14 years. I'd seen a lot. I'd lived for 18 years in California. That's a strange place. So there was a sense in which I knew what I was getting into in pastoral ministry. I knew that I was going to be making less money. I knew that my life was going to be different. I knew that I would be under a magnifying glass in a different way or my family's life would be on display. The only thing I underestimated was the weight of caring for people's souls. As I started reflecting and dealing with people's sin, not that the sin was against me, but trying to help people walk through things and the hurt and the pain. By God's grace, I've been able to do it, but it was heavier than I could have ever imagined. 
That's keeping watch over your souls. That's what God has called a pastor to do. And a faithful pastor, for all of their imperfections, they're not afraid of that accounting. They just take it seriously. There's a section in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1-4 to 4, where I think Peter does a good job of explaining the role of a true shepherd and also the, the balance of the responsibility but also the blessings from the Lord that come from faithfully fulfilling what God's called you to. Peter says this, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So there are heavy burdens and heavy accountability for being a pastor. And Peter points out some of the dangers. Some people get into it and start looking for money, hence a million dollar house. And I want to be clear. I mean, some pastors just actually have money. There's nothing inherently wrong. It's when people are manipulative and abusive to get people to give just for their own feathering of their nest. I think of some pastors that have written books and other things that have gotten popular. Our society, that just makes money. But lording it over people, being a dictator, a spiritual dictator is a perversion of what God's called a shepherd to do. So in all of this, we come back and we're told, and you're told, that you're supposed to obey and submit to your leaders, in part because they watch over your souls. Your pastors here are responsible for your souls. And God will hold us to account for each and every one of you. And then it goes and provides this additional exhortation or encouragement. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. In other words, if you have pastors who don't want to come to work and are reluctant to do the ministry and they're just groaning under the weight of caring for the sheep, it's not good for you. It's not beneficial to you. And what the writer is saying is if you willingly submit and obey the teachings of your leaders, they're going to enjoy the ministry more and it's going to be better for you. But if you're rebellious and fighting and pushing and disobedient, it says your leaders will have grief. It's an idea of a groaning. A groaning under the weight and struggle of leadership of rebellious sheep. And the fact remains, you're supposed to receive a value from the work of the ministers that God has placed over you. And what the text is telling you is if their job is made a miserable job by the congregation, then the congregation is not going to receive the benefits from their ministry that God intends. So this sort of is a 
overview of what this means. Now, how does it apply practically? When do you have to listen to me? Now, some people say a lot of things, but the question is, what authority do I have over your life? That's even a weird question to ask, but the text is saying obey. Where does that fit? Well, I think, first of all, you would have to understand any authority I have over you is derived from my calling by God. God placed me in leadership. God called me to be one of your pastors. I submit to him, and when I'm submitting to him, I'm submitting to the word. So I think my authority is derivative, and it is limited. Peter and the apostles, in in talking at one point, I think placed the limit on all submission. He said, we must obey God rather than men. Obviously, if myself or any other church leader told you to violate the word of God, then at that point you don't obey. You respectfully refuse. But in general, it all comes back to the word of God. If I'm speaking to you from the clear teachings of Scripture then according to the word of God, you're supposed to listen. Now, you won't find me generally telling you where you should work, although I can conceive of a situation where I might. For example, I'd tell you don't work in a strip club. I don't care what you are. That's not God's will. I can't picture telling you who to marry, except if you tried to marry an unbeliever, I'd tell you that's sin and you can't do it. But in general, obviously, I'm not involved in the day-to-day details of your life. What kind of deodorant do you use? What kind of tooth? It doesn't matter. You're adults. You have freedom. But when it comes to the sphere of God's Word, you're supposed to listen to what the Word of God says as spoken by your leaders. If I say to you, this is what God's Word requires, then you're supposed to obey it. And not because I said it, but because I'm telling you what God said. Now, I always want to encourage you, and I think every one of our pastors would encourage you to be a Berean with regards to what I say. Acts 17.11, if you don't have that memorized, memorize that verse. Now, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness. Again, this is the Apostle Paul teaching them can imagine, received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. If I tell you this is what God's word said, by all means, look it up. Think it through. If you have questions about something I said, come talk to me. We'll talk it through. I want you to verify that what I say is from the word of God. So I'm very careful not to give, or I try not to give, opinions on things that aren't biblical. Let me rephrase that. I try and make sure if I give an opinion on something not biblical that you know it's just my opinion and it doesn't have any weight or authority. Because in those areas, I'm just another person like you. But when it comes to what the Bible says, that's when God has given me authority to speak. I realize that's a burden placed on you and it's a frightening responsibility for me. Some of you would not be as sensitive to what I say, but I know for some of you, you're listening very carefully. And if I say something, you really are trusting and you want to try and do it. So I try not to give directives where the Word of God is silent. I try not to be dogmatic in those areas. 
where the scriptures are not clear. But if the word of God says it, I'm going to tell you. And according to the scriptures, at that point, you're supposed to obey. So the first response to church leadership, obey your leaders. It's, it's for your own benefit. And the second response is this. Pray for your leaders for their pressing needs. Pray for your leaders. Verse 18 and 19 read as follows. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do this so that I may be restored to you sooner. Pray for us. It's a straightforward, imperative command. Again, it's something that you're compelled to do and it covers every area of ministry and life. The writer of Hebrews is a leader who has served faithfully. And based on this context, it seems clear that he has served amongst the people to whom he is writing. And he uses language as as it's dissected that suggests that perhaps some people were not pleased with his leadership or some people were distrustful of his leadership. He assures them that he has a good conscience, meaning as far as he knows, he's not abused his leadership he's not done something inappropriate in his leadership when he says desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things he's just making it clear and it's beyond just i hope no he's saying this is my settled determination is to always try and live in a way that pleases the lord but in all that he's saying look pray for me i need it So I think it through, leaders asking for prayer is something that occurs over and over. From a time perspective, I won't read it all, but in Matthew 26 in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, watch. And what we read as you go along there is he keep watching and praying. He wanted them to join him in prayer. Unfortunately, they did what we would have probably done. They fell asleep again and again. But the point is, Jesus didn't hesitate to say, I need prayer. The Apostle Paul, over and over again, asked for prayer. Quite consistently, at the end of several of his letters, he does it at the end of Ephesians. He does it in 1 Thessalonians 5. He just pray for us. Pray on my behalf. Verse 18 really tells you what you should respond when it comes to Pastor Steve or myself or any of the other elders and pastors here at Lakeside. Of course, those terms are synonymous. Pray for us. Nonstop, we need prayer. John MacArthur had a statement in his commentary that I just gravitated to because I thought it was so applicable. He said, and this is me quoting him, church leaders are made of the same stuff as those they serve. They have sins, weaknesses, limitations, blind spots, and needs of all sorts just as everyone else. I can just say amen. It's unusual for me because this is the only place that people look at me as a pastor. Everybody else in my life that knows me doesn't look at me as a pastor because I was a lawyer. So all the people I know in California, they look at me different. And for whatever reason, people believe lawyers need prayer. But I can tell you as your pastor, I need prayer. I'm thankful for a praying wife. But I covet your prayers. 
because I get tired and discouraged and aggravated and impatient. Carrying burdens is wearisome. Pastoral ministry is hard and I don't ask for sympathy. This is what God called me to do. I'm thankful for the opportunity to do it. The point is I'm human. And if I'm not careful and I'm not walking by the Spirit, a joy becomes a burden very quickly. I need your prayers. Your prayers for all of your pastors enable us to have God's favor and assistance to serve in the way that we should. And I think at times, this praying for us will involve praying for very specific things. Now, verse 19 is an illustration of a specific prayer request in a specific context, but it's representative of the types of things that others might have for you to pray for. He says, I urge you all the more to do this, meaning pray for us. And the way he used us, it's not necessarily clear that he's speaking truly in a plural sense because he switches to a singular here in verse 19. That could just be an expression. But here he's being very specific. He wants prayer for himself. And he's saying it's urgent. I want you to pray for me because I want to be restored to you. Now, we have no idea what was limiting his ability to come back to the congregation. We don't know if it was persecution. We don't know if it was a personal illness. We don't have any way of knowing, and it would be wrong to speculate. What we do know, however, is that something was in his way. He wrote a letter. He perhaps would have rather given all of this in person. And a letter was just because of the fact that he couldn't get back to the people. But in this context, he knew that the prayers of the saints were what would enlist God's efforts on his behalf. We always have to be careful in a church that teaches strongly the sovereignty of God, which we do, to go to the wrong balance to where we think, well, prayer doesn't really matter. Well, God's going to do what he's going to do, so prayer doesn't matter. Now, we don't manipulate God, but God is the one who ordained that we pray. And God's the one who says he hears our prayers. So this is one of those times where God's sovereignty and how things actually work is very confusing. And as somebody who studied the scriptures for 20 plus years, I don't have all the answers, but I believe it. I believe God's absolutely sovereign and I believe God responds to our prayers. And texts like this make it clear, prayer matters. He wanted to be back with the people, and so he had a specific need, and he said, pray for this specific need. Well, from a pastoral standpoint, when we share needs, just pray for us. I can tell you from my perspective, it's hard for me to ask for prayer. I think it's primarily pride. There could be other things going on. Sometimes I just don't want to share burdens. Sometimes I just don't want other people to be bothered thinking about me. Sometimes I'm worried about appearing selfish. But those are really my issues. I'm supposed to ask for prayer. I think I shared this once before, but when Debbie was going through her cancer, it's embarrassing to me that I didn't get the elders together to pray for her. That's what the scripture says to do. But something in my own little world of we'll take care of it, that was foolishness. So if I don't ask you to pray for me, you can ask me. Because I have needs. 
But I'm a proud man and I will be reluctant to share those needs. But we need prayer. And that goes for all of us. At the bottom of your bulletin, it's a list of all the elders of the church. Now, it's in such small print that I can't read it. I know who they are. And I assume I can follow the names, but I'd fail an eye test on that. But you can get a magnifying glass and you can pray for us. Person by person. I can tell you, I think it's a privilege and a blessing to minister at Lakeside. By and large, the ministry has been a joy as difficult as it is. As I think about it, it's hard for me to believe that that this year will mark my, on July 1, I think I complete nine years at Lakeside. It's hard to believe. seems like I just got here. But I commend you in that I've not felt that I've ministered amongst a rebellious and stiff-necked people. I have been loved and cared for, and I am extremely grateful for that. And I feel that in our Sunday school class. And I minister to the church as a whole, but you're sort of our littler family within this big church, and I feel blessed. Have there been exceptions? Of, of course. But I'm in a situation where when I would do this, I would tell you like the Apostle Paul, I think you already do this. And I commend you for it. And what the Apostle Paul often said to churches who were already doing well was he would say, excel still more. So look in your own lives and see how can you do this more consistently? How can you pray more consistently? How can you be more submissive to the Word of God? I feel like you have lived out in my life what Paul said to the Thessalonians He said, but we request of you, brethren, and this is 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 and 13. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work, live in peace with one another. I feel that from you, and I feel that from the church, and I'm very grateful. But I would encourage you, Pray for us. It goes without saying that the primary or the first target, you look around churches around America, is the pastors. If you can mess with the shepherd, the sheep can scatter. So we need your prayers. But again, examine your heart. Read and reread these verses. Find out through prayer where the Lord might show you that you've been negligent in any of these areas. And I would encourage you, if you comply and obey these scriptures, it's to your own benefit. It's for your own blessing. So let me close this morning's teaching time in a word of prayer. We'll divide up for our prayer groups. And then I'll look forward to meeting with you again next week. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the faithfulness of the congregation at Lakeside and the love and faithfulness of my brothers and sisters here in Faith Builders. Lord, you know the limitations that we have as the leadership at Lakeside. You know the struggles of each one of us. Lord, as John MacArthur 
articulated the sins, the weaknesses, the blind spots. And I thank you, Lord, that you've given my brothers and sisters in Lakeside such a heart to love you and to care for you. And it's resulted in love shown to me and my family, and I'm thankful for that. Lord, I pray for each one of us to be submissive. I know the struggle I have, Lord, to be submissive in all the areas that you've called me to do so. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning that if they struggle in any way with submission to authority or to the leadership, that you would give them the ability through humble hearts to do what you've called them to do. And even as I pray that for myself. And Lord, I do pray that you would help us to be sensitive to pray for one another. Lord, in times of crisis or emergency, we, we know how to share prayer requests, even if we struggle, even in those times. But I pray, Lord, that you would help us be a praying congregation and a praying Sunday school class. Lord, I again pray for Linda's family as they continue to process her home going. Lord, we'll miss her in Faith Builders. But I thank you for the blessing that she was to us, and I thank you for your mercy and grace and love in her life. Lord, we love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.